Okay. Um, hello, Brenda. Nice to see you again. Let me unmute you. Hi, nice to see you again. And Dr. Clapper, nice to see you. Hey there, Steve. Good to see you. Thank you for sorry for pronouncing your name wrong, but thank you again for joining us. <laughs> Dr. Goldhammer, thank you again for coming and joining us. My pleasure. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much. Uh, a lot of us are very excited for the opportunity to hear what you all have to say and having a chance to see you. We're all so grateful to you and you've influenced so many of us with your books and your lectures. Um, <clears throat> we really do appreciate it. And if we appreciated you 15 years ago, we appreciate you even more now because information seems even more challenging to get honest information. So maybe at the beginning, you were one of many who told the truth. And now um, I really, really appreciate it because getting honest, accurate information from people who do the research um, and see people is really, really valuable. So thank you all very much. And I speak for um, millions of people who feel the same way. Um, so if each of you could just give a 30 second rundown um, of just what you've been doing the last few years, um, just to get everyone up to speed in case there are people that are not aware of you, Maybe we could go Dr. Goldhammer, Dr. Clapper, Dr. Campbell, and Brenda in that order. Just give us a quick update on what you do, what you've been doing, and then I'll go to, go to questions. So I operate the uh, True North Health Center, which is currently a 79-bed facility that specializes in water-only fasting. And we've been publishing some papers about the results that we've been seeing using a whole plant food diet in conjunction with fasting and dealing with a variety of common chronic degenerative conditions. Thank you. I've been a primary care physician for 50 years, and uh, towards uh, the latter half of my career, I spent eight years on the staff at True North Health Center of Dr. Goldhammer's Noble Institution, where I learned how to do nutritional medicine right and learned about the powers of fasting. Uh, but after eight years there, I was so appalled and embarrassed by the black hole of ignorance surrounded among my medical colleagues about their the effect of their patients' daily diet and the diseases they're spending their careers treating. Uh, I felt the, the higher calling for me was to uh, start going to the medical schools and talking to the medical students uh, about the importance of their patients' diet in reversing these diseases before pharmacosclerosis sets into their brains. And we've been very successful. I've lectured over 40 medical schools uh, uh, in the last two years, and we've got another, we've got dozens more ahead of us. So uh, I'm trying to wake up physicians about the importance of their patient's diet, that it really has something to do with all these diseases they're spending their careers treating. Thank you. Dr. Campbell? Yes, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet all of you guys. I know you all well, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, I've been crazy enough, actually, during the last couple of years to try to write another book, 86% done. Um, and uh, the, the purpose of the book is to try to answer the question, based on the experiences I've had in the nutrition community, but to answer the question, why has it been taking so long to understand this concept of nutrition? Uh, and as I say, based on my own experiences, particularly in policy and, and laboratory and elsewhere, uh, I'm actually kind of, I don't know, a little bit depressed, you know, over the years, particularly more recently, particularly in the sciences. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't have the same authority to speak, the freedom to speak that we once did. So 
trying to make a point, getting in trouble because of it, I guess. So that's about it. Thank you. And um, I've been spending my time writing books as usual. I had a book come out uh, called Nourish, I think it was 2020. And then the last one, Plant Powered Protein in 2023. And also I've been uh, working on developing continuing education courses with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And I just did one with the Food Revolution Network on diabetes. And of course, all of the other usual things, lecturing and uh, writing, I've been participating in writing several research articles, um, one of which I'm very excited about because it will be providing the results of our research in the Marshall Islands on diabetes. So yeah, that covers it. Okay, great. So um, assuming that all of you could time travel and you could go back to yourself when you were 10 years old, but you only had two minutes total to talk to them about health and nutrition. And they already know not to smoke cigarettes, they know not to take drugs, and they know not to drive drunk. But you now have two minutes to tell them what you know for sure. So you don't have to tell them the difference between spirulina and chlorella, but you wanna tell them in these two minutes, what are the most important conclusions after all these years that you have, so we will go into detail about a lot of things, but just right on the surface, if you're telling yourself when you're 10 years old, you have two minutes to tell them the most important things so they can prevent getting any major diseases. What are the basic core things that you want to tell your 10-year-old version of you so they know this right from the start? and don't have to make terrible mistakes and get sick and have friends get sick. So just the, the basic core things, even if you think it's obvious and a repeat of things you've said in the past, just so we all hear the core philosophy that you would tell yourself. Um, you go in the same order of Dr. Goldhammer, then Dr. Clapper, then Dr. Campbell, then Brenda Davis. So health is the result of healthful living and healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise. A healthful diet's a whole plant food, SOS-free diet. Um, exercise and sleep are both critically important. And when dietary excess has been uh, demonstrating its consequences, fasting can be an effective way of reversing the consequences of dietary excess. Okay, great, thank you. Dr. Clapper? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I would... Uh make it very clear to my 10-year-old self that uh, we, our body has basically the same digestive system that our gorilla and bonobo cousins have. They're up in the trees eating leaves and fruits and vegetation all their lives. They don't develop clogged arteries, diabetes, uh, any of these diseases of civilization. So uh, to uh, fully embrace the wide, delicious variety available in plant-based foods and stay within those boundaries, do not get tempted by animal products, see dairy products as a theft <clears throat> from mother cows and a transgression against human nature <clears throat> and uh, and don't get uh, seduced into uh, consuming dairy products. See, don't eat sugar as a food, it's a flavoring, but if you eat it as a food, it's gonna age you and hurt you. Uh, drink enough water, get enough, uh, uh, get enough sleep, uh, keep that spine limber, learn yoga early and do it all your life there. And uh, 
uh, and uh, laugh as much as you can and do as much good work for uh, people and animals around you and uh, you'll have a great life there but we're plant eater stay true to your nature thank you dr campbell yeah, I think uh, if I were talking to myself, I just would say, what are you doing in the barn? We don't need all that milk. <laughs> and uh, and also, uh, now that I'm this age, uh, to the, the one thought that occurs to me, I think that's more significant than any, is in a sense, trying to redefine nutrition. Nutrition is, as most of you obviously know, we tend to talk about nutrition in the context of individual nutrients, each one having a specific effect, specific mechanism. We've forgotten the idea that nutrients are really in food. And it's the collective effect of all the nutrients working in really magnanimous ways that actually create, creates a quite an amazing response. I, I really think this is kind of a big idea because uh, regardless of whether we're in the sciences or in the practice, I would suggest, with so much focus on detailed things uh, and trying to get things right. And we can kind of miss the mark when we just decide to eat the plants, variety of them, without the added stuff, and we don't need the salt, sugar, and, and, uh, and oil. We're home free, as good as I guess. Thank you. Brenda. Well, I think I would start by saying I am so glad that you love vegetables and fruits. <laughs> um, those are the foods that are really the most important for you. And I'm glad that you enjoy beans and whole grains and nuts and seeds. Eat you know, all of those foods you want, but I have to tell you something that's going to really surprise you. If you stop drinking milk and eating cheese, your stomach ache will go away. The stomach ache you've had all your life will disappear. And, and I also want to tell you that you don't have to eat animals, that it's okay. It's even better than okay if you don't eat animals. I know that you don't want to eat animals, but it's okay. And it's great if you stop eating them because if you stop eating them, your health will be better you'll be contributing to less pain, suffering and death in those animals. And you'll help to make the world a healthier and safer place for all of us. And so you've got most of it down, just a couple of little changes and you'll be good for life. And I know you want to accomplish a lot and making these changes will help you to do that. Okay, great, thank you. So. The Real Truth About Health is a 17-day conference. We have 80 speakers. And my job is to get speakers to speak at the conference. <clears throat> so I send out emails and I call people. And it takes a lot of effort. And we get a lot of great people. But one concern I have is people don't want to come to a conference where they then get attacked and beat up. So I find that I want to be respectful to all speakers. And I think other conferences do the same. Um, but one problem with that is you don't harass speakers. You're actually nice to them. You give them a forum to say what they want. What I really would like to do is every single time a speaker speaks, I would like at the end of every single sentence to say, prove it, prove it, prove it. Not because I want to be a pain in the neck, but because I don't want to be charmed by charismatic, smart, 
people with great credentials. So I want to always say, what is that based on? What is that based on? So even though I like a lot of people, I want to get the facts straight. I don't want to at 90, I don't want to later in life realize that something goes wrong because I wasn't really listening. So anyway, having said that, um, there are some speakers who are saying different things. Um, specifically, um, we have Dale Bredesen last night who speaks on avoiding Alzheimer's and Gabriel Cousins who eats a raw food plant-based diet and they were having saying different things about fat and cholesterol. I wanna show you Gabriel's video just to get your feedback and help me interpret or help, help, help us all understand what you, what he's saying, okay? So can we show the highlights from Gabriel's video and then ask for the speaker's feedback? Um, and I know that Dale Bredesen mostly agreed with Dr. Cousin's point of view. So I'd like to hear what four of you have to say about what he's saying. And a high carbohydrate diet. So when Joe Furman talks about, well, he sees a lot of people with vegans with brain uh, you know, degeneration. Um, I look at the high carbohydrate diet, which I don't support because it stimulates brain inflammatory pathways. Now, to me, this is a really important study, the Journal of Alzheimer's 12, 12, 2012. I'm just gonna read it because it's so important. Older people, and I we're talking people above 60, eating a high carbohydrate diet, get the word high carbohydrate because we're told a lot in the vegan world that you want a high, high complex carbohydrate diet. People are talking about 70% carbohydrate. Yeah, well, here's the result. Have nearly four times the risk of, of, of developing mild cognitive impairment. So this is what David Pulmoner in his book, Grain Brain, uh, I thought he did really good work. A diet heavy in inflammatory carbohydrates, which mostly they are, low in healthy fats, messes with the mind in more ways than one. But let's say messes with the brain in more ways than one. So. Fat is the preferred fuel of human metabolism, and it's been that way through evolution until we started farming about 10,000 years ago. Next slide, please. Now, this is really important because along with this high complex carbohydrate diet, we just have this cholesterol fear. And this is one of the second reasons I, I think that vegans tend to get more Alzheimer's because people with the highest cholesterol scored higher on cognitive tests than those with lower cholesterol levels. So this is my, I'm really talking more about cholesterol here, but Netherlands, Alzheimer's have lower amounts of cholesterol, free fatty acids in their cerebral spinal fluid. That is really important. As 2007 study showed that people who are regularly consumed omega-3, this is one of the supplements I'm gonna talk about, they were 60% less likely to develop dementia than those who didn't regularly consume such oils. That's DHA and EPA. High cholesterol is associated with better memory function. And it's the preferred fuel for your heart. I mentioned the, um, so atrial fibrillation, 
high omega-3, 85% lower risk of dying from all causes. Okay, if you could share any thoughts. Oh, I got a bunch of them. Um, there are some things I just factually disagree with when someone says that uh, uh, that fats are the preferred fuel to human body. They most certainly are not. We Our Krebs cycle enzymes in our mitochondria are set up to burn carbohydrates uh, as we dismantle glucose. Glucose is our uh, primary uh, fuel. Uh, fats are an emergency fuel. We need them, and we're always burning some in the background to keep our body temperature up, but it's not the primary source. And fats are rare in, in nature, outside of nuts uh, and the occasional rotting carcass. There's, a, we would, there's not enough fat out there to keep active humans alive. We, were, we lived on uh, the starches. There were the roots and tubers that we, uh, the paleo folks dug up and the berries that they harvested. We've been carbohydrate burning creatures all along. The idea that we were fat eaters, it just, it just doesn't make, uh, make sense. And when he says that the people, that carbohydrates are toxic to the brain or whatever, yeah, you go into a senior citizen's home and you're going to see a lot of old folks in chairs with an open bag of Oreo cookies and a Coke on the, in the glass there, and they're guzzling back all this refined sugar. And yeah, that's going to be hard on the brain. And that may promote inflammatory reactions. That is not what a high carbohydrate diet based on whole plant foods is. Broccoli is 100% carbohydrate. Uh, the, all these green yellow vegetables are essentially all carbohydrate. The, they are not pro-inflammatory. And there are healthy starches, uh, resistant starches, et cetera, and, and legumes, et cetera, um, that really supply the carbohydrates in, in a form that we require without inciting inflammation. Uh, you go to the, uh, the vegans who are eating high carbohydrate whole food diets, and you check their inflammatory markers, and they're low. Um, it's an anti-inflammatory diet to be pulling these terms out of the air. Oh, it sets off inflammation. Show me. Show, show me the HSCRP and the spinal fluid. Show, where, where is this? Uh, uh, the the assertion don't really have any basis there, so um, I, I think the uh, the terms are being really loose used quite loosely and distorted as far as uh, fat burning humans and toxic carbohydrates. Uh, I think it's a distortion of what a truly healthy whole food plant based diet really is and should do in the human body. Thank you. And I I completely agree with Michael with what Michael said. Um, uh, it, you know, the, the, the first study you talked about, I'm quite sure that the vast majority of the carbohydrates in that, in those diets uh, were refined. I think it's, it's um, important also to recognize, he mentioned that, you know, human history, we, you know, had low carbohydrate diets. That is simply not true. The, the best evidence we have on paleolithic nutrition showed fat intakes of around 20%, some as high as 35 but carbohydrate intakes ranged from, you know, 45, 50% to about 65% in most of the analyses. Um, carbohydrates were the primary fuel for the human brain. And, you know, the most current knowledge we have on Alzheimer's summarizing uh, data was a 2020, uh, 2022 review. And what they, you know, said over and over again in this review was, was that you know there are many uh, attributes, and this was really looking at plant-based diets. This was a review of plant-based diets and the incidence of Alzheimer's, and 
and um, the many attributes uh, of, of a low-fat plant-based diet, you know, low saturated fat, no cholesterol, high vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, seeds, whole grain, lots of fiber, lots of antioxidants, highly anti-inflammatory, tons of phytochemicals, all sorts of protective vitamins and minerals uh, that, you know, the we see protective effects of Mediterranean, DASH, MIND diets, all of these that have, have more fat, but the fat is generally healthier fats. Um, and, and generally, um, plant-predominant diets with, with lots of fruits and vegetables do well, but vegans actually have even better antioxidant status. They have less inflammation. They have less hypertension, less diabetes, less cardiovascular disease. They, they, they have, all of those things reduce um, Alzheimer's disease risk. They have a lack of TMAO production and TMAO is associated with brain aging and cognitive impairment. So, you know, and, and we have to say, well, well, vegan diets generally are very favorable in terms of, of brain health. There are some potential downsides like low B12, low vitamin D, EPA and DHA possibly. So in my opinion, 100% plant-based diet that's reasonably low in fat with sufficient B12, vitamin D and EPA and DHA, it would be optimal. And I think I would, I would refer listeners to Dean and, and Aisha Shirzai. Uh, they've written, you know, the Alzheimer's solution, the 30 day Alzheimer's solution. They have, you know, some great information. Uh, but yeah, I fundamentally disagree with many of the remarks uh, that uh, Gabriel Cousins made. I'll make, I'll make the scores three to nothing. Uh, Dr. Campbell, do you, your camera has gone off. Is it possible to turn your camera back on? Sorry about that. Okay, yes. There that's you it. go. Yeah, as I say, I'll make it three to nothing. I, I think both of you, uh, Brendan and Michael, have made excellent points. Uh, and I would just like to add another thing, too. Uh, too often when we're talking about the findings of this, that, or something else, we talk about uh, uh, statement or kinds of nutrients, if you will, and, and very generally, much too generally, uh, high carbohydrate diets for the most part, as far as their difficulties concerned, we all know is, is the refined sugars. And too often people don't, I think Michael, you made a reference to that, of course. And so, yeah, the, that kind of carbohydrate is not what we're talking about. I happen to agree with the natural carbohydrates, all of its nice elements that to do what they do. And and so I, I, I couldn't disagree more with what the, he said. Um, I would also uh, ask maybe all of you, and he too, uh, you may recall a guy named Neil Nedley. I don't know whether anyone knew him. He wrote a book on this just some years ago. He had a very different opinion. And I got to know him somewhat uh, those many years ago. And he would say exactly the opposite, talking about cognition, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I can't remember us talking about Alzheimer's. And that, but uh, I just had a lot of respect for the way Neil was faced with the question at that time, 30 years ago, I guess it was now. Uh, so I don't think we've really changed too much. So anyway, I don't have too much more to add. Uh, there's another thing that we tend to bury in our thinking, I think too often, when we talk about high carb, low carb, when we shouldn't be talking about so certainly as if just that's the problem. But we tend to leave out the idea of protein. And the kind of protein. Uh, as you all probably know, I've spent my entire career working on animal protein in particular, and it's somehow left out of the discussion too often. We start talking about other things that in place of that, like saturated fat or 
this or that. The animal protein, I have to say, as far as its biochemistry is concerned, as to what it really does, is a major, uh, major dimension of the concept that we're now having. And so I just find it really difficult to just talk about one thing, high carbohydrate, without talking about you know, what kind of carbohydrate we're talking about, let uh, alone the kind of omega-3 fats and omega-6, omega-3. So there's a lot of other stuff going on here. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty glib to make comments like that. Since 86 or somewhere around there, percentage of carbohydrates eaten by people in industrialized countries are refined carbohydrates. Almost any study that they're citing means that the majority of carbohydrates are refined carbohydrates that are being addressed. A whole plant food diet free of added salt, oil, and sugar is going to have somewhere around 15 to 20% of calories from fat or on 10% of calories from protein. And the majority are going to be whole plant food complex carbohydrates. So first of all, you can't really make an even remote comparison between people on refined carbohydrate diets and people on whole plant food diets. And in my own experience in practice, now I've been practicing for 40 years, I'm getting to see people now, 30, 35, 40-year follow-ups. And I'm seeing those people that are in their 80s now. They're sharp. They're doing well. Many times they're actually outliving their children that have been on refined carbohydrate-based diets. So I think we can all agree refined carbohydrates have serious problems. But the idea of attacking the primary fuel of human beings, that is whole plant foods, as being health compromising, I think is just ridiculous. Thank you. So for those of us that, um, that, you know, it seems like they're saying that high blood sugar affects diabetes, which maybe affects kidney disease, which maybe affects dementia. It seems like blood sugar is a, a real issue. Maybe I didn't say that right, but it seems like having a high blood sugar is something we're all trying to avoid. So how do you make sure that you keep your blood sugar low, I guess below 100 is considered, above 100 is considered pre-diabetic. So what do we want our blood sugar at and how do we keep blood sugar low? Uh, we had Cyrus uh, Kambata who wrote uh, Mastering Diabetes and he was saying, make sure you don't add fat to your diet, but that a little bit conflicts with the people saying you need nuts and seeds and avocados and olives to get enough EPA, DHA. So can you help me to understand what are we trying to do to keep our blood sugar low and also making sure we get enough of the right type of fat for our brains? So, so we treat a lot of diabetic patients who have hyperglycemia. And the way we treat them is with a whole plant food diet, regular exercise, and abundant sleep. And what you find in working with real patients is if you put them on a whole plant food diet, give them exercise and sleep, their blood sugars progressively begin to improve, as does their excess weight and many of the other inflammatory markers, et cetera. Sometimes we'll even speed that up faster by putting them on actual on a fasting protocol. Um, even the American Diabetes Association and some of the conventional people working with diabetics recognize that the most productive and effective way of managing diabetics is with a whole food, complex carbohydrate, low uh, fat, low protein, or relatively low fat, low protein diet. So I don't think that's even that controversial even in conventional circles nowadays. Okay. Uh, well said, uh, to put it in clinical context. Uh, we, again, are carbohydrate-burning organisms. Uh, you eat an apple and sugar levels go up in the blood. You've got to move that sugar from the bloodstream into the muscle and liver cells. 
uh, and insulin is secreted. And when insulin docks onto the insulin receptors on the surface of the muscle liver cell, that activates a series of enzymes that pulls glucose into the cell. That's how it's supposed to work. The problem is a high fat diet as one keeps their, their blood fatty day after day with the, everything from the oils to the meats to the butter fat, you know, the dairy, et cetera. All this fat starts oozing into the muscle cells and the liver cells and they inhibit the enzymes that allow insulin to work. So uh, you eat the sugar, insulin uh, comes to dock uh, at the uh, insulin uh, receptor site on the surface of the muscle cell, but nobody answers inside. The enzymes are all gummed up from the fat. And so the blood sugar piles up. They say, oh, high blood sugar, that's the problem. But the high blood sugar, that's the tail of the dog. The problem is the fat in the diet that's inhibiting insulin from doing its job. So that's why we're advocating in a whole food plant-based diet, which is naturally low in fats, that will help clear out those insulin receptors because the fat induced inhibition of the insulin receptors is reversible. You, you, you stop eating all that fat, get on a healthy, high carbohydrate, high fiber diet. You burn that fat in the muscle cell for energy. The insulin receptors open up and lo and behold, uh, you can handle sugars now. The, the insulin resistant uh, re resolves itself. So it's a fat-induced phenomenon, a reversible fat-induced phenomenon. Uh, but pay attention, you don't want to walk around with high sugars day after day after day. The high sugar eventually causes problems with membranes, et cetera. But again, clear out that fat, let insulin do its thing. Uh, sugar is supposed to go up and down after you eat a high-carbohydrate meal. That's what insulin's for. But it's a good reason not to graze and just keep eating all day because it keeps your insulin levels up all day uh, and that it keeps moving fat into the cell. So eat your healthy meal, let your blood sugar go down, get into a little fasting a few hours there before you eat your next meal. But the uh, uh, the idea is uh, the problem isn't the sugar. <laughs> you shouldn't, not in its whole plant forms. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't want to be refined sugars. But the, but the sugars in a sweet potato uh, or in a... Uh, in a uh, uh, a grape uh, should not uh, cause any threat to your health. This is a classic situation where people look at short-term uh, response to say dietary change. If you put on people on some greasy fatty diet, of course their blood sugar levels will drop because there's no carbohydrate. But that doesn't mean that you're solving the long-term problem. What's good for short-term manipulation of numbers has nothing to do with getting people healthy. And that's exactly the problem is if you continue to do that short-term gain problem, you end up with a long-term nightmare. And I, I just add a little bit. I, I think that, um, you know, we're looking at when you talk about a healthy blood sugar, we generally say a fasting glucose of, of under 100 milligrams per deciliter. But I think optimal is probably closer to the range of 70, 72 to about 85 milligrams per deciliter. And the best way, I think it's really important to recognize that, that there are, you know, um, a lot of populations in the world that, that don't have very high rates of type two diabetes. And some of them eat a fair bit of fat, but, but the, and some of them don't. <laughs> you know, when you look at the blue zone, some are fairly high in fat, some aren't, and yet they have very low rates. To me, the key is not overeating. When you overeat food and you eat too many calories, you store excess calories. 
even if it's excess refined sugars, you, you turn them into fat and you store them as triglycerides. And when you store too much, and especially in the, in the form of visceral fat, and, and it ends up, you know, you end up with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you store it in your liver, you store it in your pancreas, you store it in your muscle tissue, uh, you, you induce uh, insulin resistance, which is really the cause of type two diabetes. And the best way to keep sugar down is to eat whole foods, but not to overeat and to be physically active. And one of the keys we found in the Marshall Islands doing research there was, um, was to get people moving after they eat. So don't eat a big meal and sit back in your chair and watch TV, get moving. Even if it's a slow walk, move your body and that will help also to reverse insulin resistance. Yeah, I'm sorry, I had to leave for a second. Uh, actually, I'm not uh, that familiar with the clinical information on diabetes and sugar, I should say, but I just pulled up here the data that we had from China. As you know, that was largely a, a society that had very minimal intake of animal foods, quite frankly. It's remarkably consistent, you know, among 100, well, 130 different villages, almost identical, that the, the glucose level, for example, plasma glucose was 60, 60 plus or minus two or three. I mean, I, and then that, that's one comment I'd like to make. The other is, uh, without getting into the clinical details of that information, uh, I find it pretty exciting, remarkable that when we put people on these kind of diets, such as these so-called jumpstart programs and the like, uh, they, you know, the, the diabetes is one of the first to, you know, get well, if you will, along with reverse, reverse and heart disease and a whole lot of other things. So it's hard to imagine that somehow diabetes is a different responder to this kind of diet, for example, than, than, than it is for, uh, for the other diseases. We see it every day, Colin. You know, this, 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 I was just looking at these numbers and I hadn't paid that much attention to them, but it's so, it's so consistent across all these male and female. Right. Almost right on point. And the other thing I might add too, you've probably seen this, um, when we get students from China, uh, when they come here, uh, they're in pretty good shape, but so many of them suffer from uh, diabetes before too long. And I think it's a re the response to that is pretty remarkable. Some of us have seen that for years. So just to clarify, just to make sure I'm perfectly clear on three things. When you speak to a patient, a motivated patient, and they're asking you for your very best advice. What exactly are you saying to them regarding salt one, oil two, meaning hemp, flax, olive, chia, and three, um, if you say no to the oil, what are you saying to them specifically about raw nuts, raw seeds, avocados, and olives? So first salt, second oil, third, assuming you said no to the oil, what are you saying about raw seeds, raw nuts, avocados, and olives? So those three things, just to be clear of what you're saying. So we, we don't use any added salt, oil, or sugar in the diet. We don't believe that salt, oil, and sugar are actually food. They're hyper-concentrated food byproducts that have been processed out and reintroduced to stimulate dopamine production in the brain and lead to the pleasure trap. So we advocate a whole plant food diet that is naturally high in, uh, in uh, complex carbohydrates, has adequate quantities of sodium in the diet, 
has all the protein, including the essential amino acids that you need, and has uh, the um, essential fats that are necessary without the use of any fractionated foods. So that's why we talk about a vegan SOS-free diet. And what about the nuts, seeds, avocados, and olives? Because these foods are naturally very rich, particularly for people looking to control weight and or pathology, we'll recommend they limit the amount of the whole plant food uh, that are rich in fats. For example, nuts and seeds, we're typically guiding people to use an ounce a day or so of these kind of products. Um, things like avocado, we would, we would recommend uh, that they might limit themselves to a half an avocado a day because we don't want the diet to be excessively high in fat. These diets with moderate amounts of uh, these rich foods will have around 15 to 18% of calories from fat. And clinically, that's what we've seen that works best in helping people with established pathology or excess weight lose their excess weight and reverse their pathology. Uh, I, as one who spent eight years on the staff at True North, I'm, of course, going to uh, agree with the vast majority of uh, what you just heard. I'm not a big oil fan. The oils get into the walls of the blood vessels and uh, stiffen them. They inhibit the insulin production. I'm not a big oil fan and, and recommend against their use stir fry in water or vegetable broth, something else that's wet, that's, that's not oily. Um, do nuts and seeds have uh, fatty foods uh, have a place to diet? Yes, I certainly think they do. They provide not only uh, uh, fats, especially walnuts, uh, flax seeds, chia seeds, et cetera, but especially of the omega-3 variety as well as lignans and fat-soluble vitamins. So a small handful, you know, an ounce, two ounces at the most of crushed walnuts on your oatmeal, I think is perfectly fine. And a, and a quarter of an avocado on your on your uh, hummus sandwich, I, I think it's fine. Uh, you have to get your fast somewhere, get them out of whole foods, not out of glass bottles. So I'm okay with small amounts of fast in their natural form. Uh, and um, salt, um, I'm a recovering saltaholic. I, I used to uh, use a lot of it. I've found other ways to entertain my tongue with, with lemon juice and uh, um, uh, non-salty uh, substitutes that we can make at home in the uh, in a grinder here or uh, Benson's Table Tasty. There are some people, they, they tend to be young or middle-aged women, very lean, very, the, the 98 pound women with low, they, their blood pressure on a good day is 80 over 60. They run low blood pressures and they can get lightheaded easily. Those folks benefit from a little extra salt on their food. Uh, I have no problem with that. And if, and if literally a pinch, you know, an eighth of a teaspoon uh, on your veggies or whatever increases the enjoyment of the veggies, uh, and you don't have high blood pressure or anything like that, I'm 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 okay with just a tiny amount just just for flavoring there. But uh, avoid those processed foods that already are loaded up with salt. That, that's where we really get in problem. But a small amount added to the table is, is acceptable to me. Uh, so salt, fat, and uh, and oils. So that's uh, where I stand on those. Thank you. I'd like to add a comment on the oil question because uh, for some reason in general conversation about added oil, I think I think it's missing something. Basically added oil, as we know, is liquid. It's from plants uh, and it's mostly polyunsaturates. And polyunsaturates historically for a long time have been considered the good fats, right? Well, it turns out that when the oil is in the plant itself, it has a different kind of effect, different kind of function than when it's isolated. In the plant, the polyunsaturated oils are participating in the production of free radicals, for example, but very controlled, which is beneficial 
for treating some of the illnesses we might have or the inflammation. When it's in the plant, the moment we take it out, the polyunsaturates, then they're subject to oxidation, obviously, a lot of free radical production, and they're virtually, they're really quite toxic. Uh, and so in contrast, the saturated fats, which we always have labeled bad fats because, because they're primarily associated with animal food. On the other hand, surprisingly, they are not reactive you know, when you take them out of the food. So I think we need to make this distinction uh, you know, on this point about saturated versus unsaturated. I don't consider unsaturated fats uh, bad necessarily when they're part of plants. When you put them out and put them in a bottle, it's a different story. And vice versa for saturated fats. So that's something we tend not to pay too much attention to. Thank you. And um, I'll add my two cents worth. I, I, um, I agree that uh, oils are best coming from whole foods. Uh, when they come from whole foods, <laughs> they're packaged with fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and and pre pre and pro you know prebiotics for sure, uh, and these are all of benefit. When you extract them from a food, you lose most of the nutrients that that food provides. Um, however, that having been said, again, if you look at the blue zones, there are some blue zones that use a fair bit of oil and still maintain good health. But the you know the bulk of their diet is still whole plant foods. They're not eating a lot of highly processed foods. I was amazed when I went to. Spain and, and I was giving a lecture there at a nutrition conference and I was just shocked at how the food was so soaked in olive oil. It was just dripping in olive oil. And yet a lot of the people were lean and had beautiful skin and hair. And, and so it was, it was just interesting to see. But I think for most people in North America, 70% of whom will die of a diet-induced disease Adding oil to the diet is just adding calories with no nutrition. They need to increase nutrient density, not decrease it. So generally, we really want to minimize intake. In terms of, um, of uh, 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 salt, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, I tend to be a little more liberal saying, you know, keep sodium under about 1500 milligrams. Um, for some people, it's better to go even lower. But I have seen individuals, Dr. Clapper mentioned, uh, you know, women who are very, especially very, very thin with very low, low blood sugar or with low blood pressure. I mean, but but I have also seen athletes um, who uh, sweat a lot, <laughs> who they're not uh, your standard American eater uh, or or exerciser, and they need a little more sodium uh, because they're sweating so much. So I think for it, it really depends on the individuals. Humans really probably need about 500 milligrams per day, or even you know uh, less, um, unless they're they're sweating a lot for most people. So most of us would do would do well with a lot less salt. If you think about you know, the average American intake being what, 3,400 milligrams or so a day and the average man about 4,000, um, you know, and 75% of that salt's coming from processed foods. Uh, but it, it's just way too much. We need to, we need to be eating a lot less. We, we consistently see patients though that are on, on vegan diets that have made attempts to be healthy, but they're more flexible on the sodium because many of the leaders in the vegan movement are much more flexible about sodium. And some have actually been almost proponents of it. 
And you take those patients and you put them on a whole plant food SOS-free diet and their persistent hypertension normalizes, their, their persistent joint pain eases, some of the digestive difficulties and microbiome related problems correct. So I would agree, some people are more sensitive than others. And some people you know, might have to be uh, particularly diligent in order to avoid problems. But I think everybody's better off served, just like you don't need to add refined carbohydrates to get enough carbohydrate. You don't need to add oil to get enough fat. You do not need to add salt to get uh, refined salt to get enough sodium. What you might do just like we do with food is add more particularly sodium rich um, foods in the diet, all your steamed greens and all the foods that are so naturally high in sodium to meet any purported needs or increased needs. I would venture though that the athletes need more sodium to the proportional needs of their increased caloric intake. So if they're getting all of their calories from whole plant foods, they're going to get the sodium they need no matter how much they're sweating. The problem is that many athletes, like many people, are eating a significant percentage of their, their calories from refined foods. So they're not getting all their calories and their increased calories because of their increased activity. And therefore, they don't get enough of the micronutrient density that they might need. Okay. Um, Brian Clement has said many times, that the fruit has been bred to be bigger and sweeter than it would be in nature, that you've, you know, 200 years ago, the grape was wild, it had a seed in it, it was tart, it was only available three weeks a year, and now you can get a Fuji apple that's super sweet, that was made in a laboratory or a, a university to be bred to be sweeter. And he's saying that it feeds yeast mold, fungus, candida, and cancer. And he's saying that Professor Thomas Seyfried from Boston College says that cancer's fuel is glucose and glutamine. And to starve cancer, you want to, you know, avoid glucose and glutamine's hard to starve, but do this best as possible. And I've asked Brian this a hundred times because I don't want anyone messing with fruit because it's one of the greatest joys in the world. So um, it doesn't intuitively feel good to me to say that I should be avoiding blueberries, but he's insistent that this somehow is uh, is feeding can yeast mold, fungus, candida, and cancer. And those all scare me. So what is your thought on what Brian is saying about fruit? I mean, it's true that whole fruits today have been hybridized. They are higher in sugar, lower in minerals. If you go to Hawaii and look at the wild apples, you know, they, they look more like vegetables today. And so, and it's also true that some people, because of their existing pathology, have problems processing glucose efficiently. And for those people, will limit their fruit to whole fruit only and, and perhaps limit the quantity. There are some fruits like berries and melons that tend to be a lower glycemic response than others. And you may manipulate the diet of individual patients to accommodate their current pathology. But the bottom line is just get enough vegetables in the diet, both raw and cooked, that you can neutralize whatever negative effects there might be from a higher uh, sugar balanced fruit. And for the vast majority of people, they're going to do fine. If you're clinically intervening for a specific therapeutic uh, end game, that's a different story. But for most people, whole plant foods, including whole fruits, um, are going to be uh, well served, uh, well tolerated, even in diabetics, although you may have to limit the quantity, you know, the proportion of calories that come from the simpler sugars for people that have existing pathology. And I'll, I'll just add, I've done a number of searches on PubMed to try to find studies that suggest <laughs> fruit has detrimental effects on health, and I can't find any. Um, there was a, I think it was 2018 comprehensive review on fruit and health, and it had, you know, over 350 references, and their conclusion was 
group provides health benefits by protecting um, you know, gastrointestinal health, improving the, the microbiome, reducing inflammatory diseases, diverticular disease, promoting long-term weight management, uh, reducing risk of heart disease and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and cancers and improving the odds of aging successfully and reducing asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases and so on and so on and so on. I found, I just couldn't find a single study that supported the idea that fruit is dangerous to health. Okay. Um, what do you recommend in terms of nutritional supplements that each of us should or shouldn't take? Well, there's, there's no skipping. There's no uh, not honoring our needs for vitamin B12. Um, it used to be in the drinking water. It used to be in the, uh, when we lived earth-connected lives, we used to be on unwashed vegetables, but welcome to the 21st century. Nobody's drinking out of streams. Nobody's uh, eating unwashed vegetables. And uh, the exchange we make with modern sanitation is that our natural, quote, these 12 sources uh, have been taken away. So we have to, uh, if we want to be pure plant eaters, uh, consume some B12 uh, on a uh, twice weekly, three times weekly basis. And it's, it's no joke. Uh, if, you, if you let those levels go too low, you really risk injuring your brain, your spinal cord, uh, and letting homocysteine build up in your artery walls, setting you up for strokes and heart attacks. So uh, have something, uh, either a supplement or fortified food with vitamin B12, at least twice a week, three times a week, somewhere in the anywhere between 100 to 500 microgram range, three times a week should be more than enough for most folks. Uh, after that, it depends what your actual food stream really consists of. Uh, zinc can be a challenging mineral for vegans to get. Uh, it's in whole grains and legumes, uh, but you gotta really eat the beans and the lentils and, and the grains. And uh, if you're not, if you're living on processed foods, you may wind up short of, uh, of uh, zinc. Vitamin D uh, was never a problem a million years ago. We lived out naked in the sunshine, lots of B12, lots of vitamin D on our skin. But now we're all living inside lives here. We're afraid to go out in the sun. And so vitamin D levels are going down. And there's a question whether low D levels increase the risk for everything from infections to cancers, et cetera. So whether it's a good idea to keep your vitamin D level up uh, over 35 micrograms uh, per liter um, th that might be part of a supplement program. Uh, and the other two would be iodine. Uh, if you're not eating fish, uh, you need iodine for thyroid function and other functions in the body. Uh, and if the soil, it used to be in the soils, but we've let a lot of that leach out. Uh, and as an insurance policy, 150 micrograms of iodine, preferably in sea vegetables that you add some, uh, uh, some wakame or some aramate to a super salad or have some nori slices during the day. But if not, if you're taking a vegan multivitamin, yeah, 150 micrograms of biodine, probably a nice thing they have in there. And then the last thing is uh, DHA and EPA, whether, and this is controversial, whether you think uh, having a low omega-3 index is a problem or not. Uh, if you think it's a problem and it's below four, you should probably, the, some studies suggest nobody knows uh, but um, some studies suggest that taking uh, EPA and DHA from algae uh, may help 
maintain mentation and mental acuity. It may do absolutely nothing for that. You might make all the, the DHA and EPA you need right in your brain cells. Any exogenous DHA might be a complete waste of time and money. I'm open to that possibility, but that would be the other aspect of a Selfman program. So B12 for sure, possible or at least consider vitamin D, iodine, zinc, uh, and DHA, EPA. Um, that's about all you would need. You know, you. and I would, oh, sorry, go ahead, Alan. Well, I was just going to say, you know, what some things like zinc are proportional to what your diet like. If you're on a high phytate diet, your need for zinc may be higher. But if you're not eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, the amount of zinc that you actually need may be uh, adequately provided by the, the primary diet. Uh, and the same thing's true with iodine. If you're eating lots of green vegetables that weren't all grown in Minnesota, where the soils are depleted in iodine, you're less likely to have a problem. Or if you include, say, some sea vegetables, like Dr. Clapper mentioned, uh, iodine is not going to be something that you're going to need pills and potions for. For most people that are eating um, uh, a good uh, whole plant food diet, they're going to get enough essential fatty acids to convert to dehocosohexohexonic acid, and their ratios should be preserved. Um, some people, for example, can't eat nuts or seeds, or they have issues that prevent them from doing that. Maybe those people might have to consider supplementation. But for, for most people, I think the, the one argument you could make a pretty solid case for is B12. As you mentioned, you know, we don't get the fecal contamination from the dead decaying flesh if you're on a vegan diet. You don't get the contamination from the environment since B12 is only from bacteria. Uh, and we're careful, as we should be, about our hygiene because we want to avoid worms and parasites and other problems. Supplementing B12 for vegans makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I completely agree with uh, Dr. Clapper's you know, list. Uh, the one thing that I would add is zinc um, is probably best not taken as a single nutrient supplement unless you have a confirmed zinc deficiency and you're guided. It's a very um, low ceiling for upper limit of zinc of about 45 milligrams, I think it is for adults. And it's even, you know, a lower limit for children. So uh, in, if you're including a high quality um, multi, uh, in having, you know, the zinc there, the iodine there, maybe choline, some selenium and so forth can, can uh, be helpful. But I think especially uh, for children who are picky eaters and, you know, ten, tending towards more of the refined carbohydrates, the pasta and bread and so on, that sometimes trace minerals can get a little low for them and having a good quality multi that includes zinc and, and even iron uh, in many cases can be helpful. And, and of course, iron, uh, we didn't mention, but, but uh, for, for young uh, children, iron deficiency is sort of the number one uh, nutritional deficiency in the world. And so we do wanna make sure that the diet is constructed in a way that we're including a lot of, of iron and zinc rich foods, which means including legumes. And they're not always the easiest things to get into the diets of children. So sometimes a supplement can be useful. I think we should be careful, though, assuming that you can take a pill and make up for a, a poor diet choice. Oh, you can't. No. And, and iron particularly is a good example of a supplement. You should be extremely careful of supplementing iron, particularly in males, where you can do a lot of damage to people. And as you pointed out, zinc, too, in, in concentrations higher than are desirable. The real answer is to get people eating whole plant food diets. It's not trying to pretend that we're, they're going to eat the crap anyway, and so now we're going to give them pills. I think that's a, a, a fundamentally philosophical mistake. 
Oh, I agree completely. And there's no supplement that will make up for a bad diet. The diet needs to be as good as possible, but there are instances, especially with picky children, that it could make sense to use use a, a, a good quality multi, a whole food good quality multi. I have to say, I've really enjoyed this conversation, particularly in this question, uh, to hear what all of you say. I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I had a front seat, and I might share this idea for a moment, a fairly front row seat uh, when the whole vitamin supplement business started back in the 80s. It was before, it was somewhat true before that, but during the 80s and after I was on a committee of diet, nutrition, cancer, we spoke and made the point that we didn't see too much uh, uh, evidence to support the use of vitamins. So anyhow, because of that, I was put on a, I was a National Academy representative for a three-year-long trial uh, on the proposition that uh, some entrepreneurs wanted to get together to start selling vitamin supplements. And at that time, uh, so I had three years to look at it fairly closely and look at the evidence in those days. And I've been influenced by that ever since, even more so listening to three of you right now. But at that time in 1981, there was this particularly significant paper that came out that caught a lot of attention. Namely, there was a study showing that for uh, smokers, heavy smokers, um, smoking 30 years or more, uh, that obviously uh, the ones smoking 30 years or more compared to the ones less, the 30 years or more, they were, they were the ones that really got the, the lung cancer, obviously. But then they did something kind of interesting in that cohort. They took these group, these people and they analyzed or determined beta-carotene intake for, for these folks. And what they got out of it was a really fantastic set of data. It was a perfect dose-response relationship. Uh, they're all you know high risk for lung cancer, if you will. But the beta-carotene, the higher the beta-carotene, the lower was the risk for lung cancer. In fact, it was down to almost non to the non-smokers. It was the I mean, it was really extraordinary that the beta-carotene reflecting a plant-based diet, obviously, not in those days a real plant-based diet, but just enough, just enough that they really reduced the uh, lung cancer. I was uh, told a little while, I said that one time, somehow I got recorded and I really caught it in the, and I got a, a uh, challenging comment from the group at uh, WHO at the time were trying to get people to stop smoking. Don't, they said, don't talk about that. Don't talk that because if people are smoking then thought that beta carotene or eating plant-based foods, you know, would reduce lung cancer, then they could keep on smoking. Uh, and so I got right in the middle of it. Uh, then after that, there was a second study as a follow-up that was conducted where uh, some folks got really interested in the idea that maybe beta-carotene might be good to take it in the form of a supplement. So that study was done. You may know this study. I'm not sure, but it was a study during the 80s and reported in early 1990s. What they found was that among the smokers, they, they had intended that this study to go on for about 29,000 smokers. They intended to go on for about eight years because they didn't expect to see a significant result before that time. They had to stop it at five years. And what happened was that the smokers that I mean they were, were taking a beta carotene, uh, their risk of lung cancer went up. Highly, it was statistically significant. In contrast, in that same study, those consuming the beta carotene as food, it was significantly down. It was a remarkable effect. So beta carotene in the supplement form was not doing the same thing it does in the food. 
And thereafter, uh, I kind of followed fairly closely a lot of the early studies testing various kinds of supplements on various kinds of conditions. And uh, I was really surprised to see that it's a crapshoot when you take a, a vitamin supplements. Right. Really I, I would I would love to add something to that, Colin. The the um, I, I think one of the reasons may have been that there are what 50 or 60 carotenoids that are commonly present in the variety of foods we eat. And when you take and concentrate, you just, you know, loading the bloodstream with just one, you, you may not absorb the others so well from your food because you're, you're saturated with beta carotene. And, you know, there's this, you, you often talk about the synergistic effect of all of these different important components in the diet and how they work together. And I, I, it was my feeling that we saw that result probably because it, it was a variety of carotenoids that provided the advantage when we looked at that biomarker beta carotene being high beta carotene was a marker for all of the carotenoids which probably work synergistically to provide protection rather than just beta carotene and and i think that's why it, it failed and i completely agree that phytochemicals uh, particularly need to come from foods uh, very, very important because there are so many and they work together. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Brenda. Uh, my point was really just to sort of tell that story because it was a very significant mm -hmm. study at the time. Uh, and uh, the, the beta carotene was reflecting in the food, a whole bunch of other, other carotenoids, about 7,800 or so. So, you know, all that is going on for sure. That was the point I was just trying to make is that's the first observation I saw at the time at a critical point in the history of vitamin supplementation, I would suggest, mm -hmm. that showed this remarkable effect. And they had to stop the study at five years instead of going to full eight. And that was, but at the same time that was going on, there were people in the uh, supplement community who were really anxious to get this, this uh, kind of business going. They came to visit me. I, I knew them, the, the lawyers and some of the others who were wanting to change the laws and get it going. Now, from that point onwards, early 90s at that point onwards, of course, it's, it's exploded, as you know. And I don't know what the latest figures are, but it's like a 50 or $60 billion business. I was greatly influenced by the fact that looking at some other studies that came out, supplements, vitamin supplements alone, you can't count on them. Can't count on them, obviously. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You, can, you can finish. Will you finish? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we just have one minute, and I just want to ask you one final question. And the final question is everything you're saying sounds great. So, what happens in the last 30 years with your patients? In other words, did everyone live to 110, or do people with whole food plant based diets that are SO, you know, no salt, no oil, no sugar, do they still get cancer and Alzheimer's and heart disease? Do they just get it less? Do they not get it? Like, what is, you know, the theories make sense, but what actually happened to the people that you've been following closely? Do you every so often get a call from someone that says, so-and-so did exactly what you said and they died? Or are you saying, like, what, what is the actual result from following what you're saying compared to the general public as best as possible? Because I know it's hard to know that, you know, to keep perfect track. 
I, I, my conclusions I'm coming to so far is that how long you live is largely determined by genetics and luck, but how well you live in the time you're alive is largely determined by your diet and lifestyle choices. People that make good diet and lifestyle changes have a much higher percentage chance of living until they reach their genetic potential and go to sleep one night and don't wake up. They have good lives and good deaths. They don't have the tendency towards long-term debility that you see so common in patients that live more conventionally. So I think it's gonna turn out to be how well they live and that they maintain good cognitive and physical function until close to the end of their existence rather than spending years or decades debilitated. That's gonna be the big gain from uh, uh, adopting healthy diet and lifestyle habits. Thank you. Uh, my patients, all my patients are only in their 110, so I can't tell you what's going to happen to them as they uh, as they progress, but I'm, I'm following them along. Uh, but you, you bring up a, uh, an important point that this is such an important question. The only way it's going to really be answered is by identifying a pool of people who've been raised as vegans since birth, they brought up as vegans, and lived at a plant-based diet all their lives and see what happens to them that would give you a, a far better picture than someone who eating the standard diet until he's 55 has his angina and then switched to a vegan diet. He's, he's already uh, uh, has altered his physiology. It's hard to, hard to say what, uh, uh, what his ultimate fate will be. But at any time you adopt a plant-based diet, it's going to help the body. It's going to uh, uh, motivate healing forces to kick in. And whatever conditions you got, it's going to be better. You may have already compromised your ultimate lifespan, but as Dr. Goldhammer says, there ought to be less sickness, less morbidity and disability along the way when you when you until you you reach your final day. Um, there's no evidence I know of that going back to the standard American diet does anything good for your health. Uh, and, lo and lots of uh, studies showing that a plant-based diet uh, optimizes one's health. And for that reason, I think. Um, uh, the case is already uh, closed. Uh, that, uh, I, I think the point's already been made. And people, uh, we like to kid ourselves as homo sapiens, and we like to cheat on ourselves and think that nobody's looking, but your body's never not looking. And uh, and, uh, and the truth of a plant-based diet comes out as individuals. So eat plants and get on with it. I don't have a t-shirt made with uh, Eat plants, get on with it, enjoy your life. Thank you. And I would uh, just add uh, from my own experience that that um, you know the, the, the I guess the health that people enjoy is directly proportional to the changes they make <laughs> and how much they stick to those changes. And and Alan um, was just telling us about some of the work he's doing, seeing people who have stuck to the changes that he's taught and, and how beautifully they do. And to me, that's the most exciting news I've heard in a long time. But it, it I do, I have many, um, many clients that I've worked with that have maintained extraordinary health for years and others that fall back to old habits. And our goal is really to figure out how we can motivate people to stick to these. And my own thinking is that, you know, people care more about belonging to their tribe than they do about surviving almost on their own. So, you know, they want to belong. And so we have to do everything we can 
to make this more mainstream, to help people feel like they belong, to give them, to provide delicious, nutritious food, to make it easier for them to stick to this kind of diet long-term. Okay, in five seconds, just tell everyone how to stay in touch with you and follow up with you. Brenda, first you. Uh, Brenda Davis at telus.net is, is my email and anybody's welcome to email me. Okay, and you can go on our website, click on Brenda Davis, and that'll take you to her website and her books. BrendaDavisRD.com. RD.com. Dr. Campbell, how can we stay in touch with you? Yeah, nutritionstudies.org. That's the program we've had, nonprofit, now with Cornell. Uh, and it's been really done quite well over the years, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. Nutritionstudies.org. Thank you. Dr. Clapper? Uh, if you want nutrition information and uh, things in general to keep yourself healthy, go to drclapper.com. It's all spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-K-L-A-P-E-R.com. Uh, but if you want to uh, help us reach more medical students with the plant-based message and you want to help me uh, uh, change the course of American medicine, uh, help us through our nonprofit, Moving Medicine Forward. And that website is movingmedforward.com. So we can uh, sure use your support, but you're going to get good things at both websites. Dr. Goldhammer? TrueNorthHealth.com. So I want to let you know, I really appreciate it. It's really an honor to be able to um, have all of you. I respect you all. And so I, I'm the one who's got the microphone, but I am channeling what millions of people want to say, and they really want to say thank you. They really do appreciate it. Um, we are really have challenges in this world. We are really getting misinformation from mainstream papers. A lot of people are trying to make money on us and are not honest. So to find smart, honest people that are on our side, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Can we unmute everyone? Unmute yes. everyone. Yes. Thank, you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.